Welcome to The Report Card with Matt Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. Every year, there's a fair number of awards and honors in the ed policy space, and not all of them carry the same meaning. Some are bigger than others, and that's the case with the award we're discussing today. Founded in 2016, the Yidon Prize is often referred to as Education's Nobel Prize, and its aim is to recognize individuals or groups who have contributed significantly to education research and development and it comes with a hefty $4 million award. Winning this award is a serious achievement, and today we're thrilled to welcome the winner of the 2021 Yidan Prize, Rick Hanushek. Rick is the Paul and Jean Hanna Senior Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Rick has authored or edited 24 books and over 250 articles, and has long been at the cutting edge of education research. Rick graciously agreed to stop by the report card today to discuss his career, his future projects, as well as to impart some words of wisdom that he's gathered over the years. Rick, welcome to the report card. Thanks for having me, Nat. First things first, congratulations. This is a big award and certainly well-deserved. Well, I obviously was quite thrilled by getting this award, but as soon as I got a little bit past the initial thrill, I also recognized that um, I owed a lot to strong colleagues and co-authors who had carried me along with them. I'm sure. How did you learn about the award? I mean, how did they tell you that you had been the recipient? Well, they actually gave me a slight preview because they wanted me to record an acceptance speech. So it's not like the Nobel Prize where they wake you up at 3 a.m. in the morning and say that you just won. So I knew a little bit beforehand, but I was equally as surprised uh, when they called me in the middle of an Uh, evening earlier than the the prize was supposed to be announced. So this award is is less uh, recognition of a particular point of study and more for a career's worth of significant contributions to research. Uh, And I kind of want to go back to the beginning. I mean, I'm sort of curious how you got started on this path. And, you know, for some context, um, Rick, when I was in graduate school, I read you in some of my classes, and I'm not necessarily a spring chicken. So you've been around for a while. And it strikes me that as as an economist, back when you started, a focus on education might not have been like the main thoroughfare for economists. So what led you to focus on education for most of your career? Well, essentially, there were no economists doing education when I started. I started in graduate school when I was at MIT. And just as I was starting to look around for a thesis topic and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, the Coleman Report came out. And the Coleman Report was this massive federal government document, which is essentially the first large-scale quantitative study of student performance. That study, uh, Equality of Educational Opportunity, was designed to look at the opportunities facing kids, uh, particularly through segregation in the South. It was uh, a part of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The study came out, it was a huge 750-page document of tables and numbers and data analysis that nobody had any idea what, uh, how to interpret or what they meant because nobody was doing that kind of work. But it was interpreted quite commonly as saying, well, the thing that really matters is families, and schools don't really matter that much. I thought this was crazy sitting there that, in fact, we 
gave so much attention to education and schooling. We spent a lot of money for it in 1964, a lot, lot less than, than we do now. And to say that schools really don't make much difference seemed like a, a crazy finding. So I actually participated in a Harvard faculty seminar. I snuck in the back as a graduate student. And uh, Pat Moynihan, who later became senator, uh, helped to, to run that seminar. And I wrote a thesis on education performance uh, that using the data that the Coleman people had collected, that got me just down a path where there were more and more interesting questions. I, I should say, I guess I'd have to give the answer first. My work had suggested very early on that maybe Coleman was right in the following sense. The things we measured about schools didn't really matter. If we measure how many laboratories they have or even the salaries of teachers or how much is spent on the schools, that was not very closely related to student performance. He was wrong, he and his team were wrong when it came to do schools matter because what we found subsequently is there are huge differences across schools, largely in my opinion, related to the quality of the teachers in the schools and that he just had not measured quality well enough to in fact identify the big differences that were systematic and important. Yeah, omitted variable bias can, can get the best of us, right? Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. So um, that totally makes sense as a start, landmark Coleman report and chasing the lessons that, that we gleaned or, or thought we gleaned from that. To give listeners sort of a broad sense of your career in education research, you know, what are just kind of the broad buckets or, you know, lanes that you've spent a lot of your time in? Well, I've traveled between uh, a lane that looks at what leads to better achievement of students and a lane that says, what, what is the impact of better achievement on subsequent outcomes for individuals and society? So the most of my original work was aimed at this question about uh, what aspects of schools and, and families and neighborhoods are important for achievement. Um, and I guess very early on, I started saying things quite like the Coleman report in the sense that I said, we've, we've got a lot of studies now initially that suggested that resources per se were not systematically and consistently related to performance. Um, that led to considerable backlash, of course, because there are a number of people that could care less about the research, but they want to get the right answer. And they had an idea that my answer was not the right answer. And very early, I also got into looking at teacher impacts and what I did early on, which is subsequently sort of caught hold, is to look across classrooms with different teachers and take into account where students started the, the beginning of a school year and measure what they knew at the end of a school year and compare whether you learn more in one classroom than another. And systematically, this was an attempt 
to get at the value added of teachers? What do they add above families and neighborhoods and so forth that we know are important? And found that value added of teachers in terms of what they contributed to learning was a very good metric of teacher effectiveness. And that's, that's where I broke with Coleman because we found that within the same school, you could find teachers with the same degrees and the same level of experience that were getting very, very, very different performance out of their students. Yeah, teachers certainly matter. We know that now, but it took a while to prove it, I guess. Um, and let me, I'll, I'll finish your first question, then we can go back and talk about anything you want. Later on, um, sort of in the last 20 years or so, I guess, um, I started looking more intensely at what is the impact of achievement on subsequent outcomes, particularly economic outcomes that I focused on. And I think that the most important part of that was to look at how achievement relates to economic growth of nations. And in simplest terms, what I found with some co-authors, my current co-author Luger Woosman and I have done a lot recently on this, we found that achievement of students in a country, say as measured by our international tests like PISA and TIMS, explains almost all of the variation in growth rates, long-run growth rates across countries. This is an astounding uh, finding because it really says a lot about where economies will be in the future. Economic well-being uh, in the future is almost entirely dependent upon economic growth rates. And if growth rates are a function of student learning, it says these schools are really, really important for countries. Yeah, certainly worth the focus, which is comforting because I spend a lot of time studying uh, schools and, and so do a lot of our listeners. So Rick, clearly you've got a lot of work under your belt, probably far more than we could cover here. Let's talk about the Yidon Prize because it comes with some generous funding that gives you pretty significant resources to pursue sort of a, a, a major endeavor that you probably otherwise wouldn't be able to. So what do you plan to tackle with those new resources? Well, I'm proposing to do something that is different than, than I've done in the past. In the past, you have to ask this question, if we have research that hints at what are the best ways to, to teach things and um, how do we organize schools and so forth, we see that many of the research things that we think are important are not really implemented very well in states and localities in the US or across countries. I started to think more and more that having local capacity is important. Having people that are in the policy making at the locality that can understand research, do some of the research maybe themselves, evaluate what's working and what isn't, and then try to improve policy. I've proposed trying to help build local capacity in Africa. And that comes out of this international work that I've done with Ludger and other, other people, that as you look around the world, you see that Africa 
looks much worse than every other place that you can see as a large region. And part of it is that even though they have lots of schooling, you can see they get large number of years of schooling, what they learn is really not up to international standards. And you sort of ask why, because we have the World Bank and other people, lots of NGOs trying to put money into schools, and it doesn't seem to improve at a very rapid rate. So to repeat back before we get too far, so what you're saying is in Africa, there's lots of education in terms of number of years of schooling, but if you differentiate on quality, they're, they're really far behind as uh, a continent or region. Absolutely. I mean, partly it's a little bit of guessing, frankly, because African countries as a whole have not participated in much of the international testing either. But there are a few African countries that have participated, like South Africa. South Africa has taken the tests that you can then compare them to everybody else. And then there's um, what you see is South Africa is basically at the bottom of the league tables of those countries that are taking the test. Are then some regional tests within Africa that suggest, well, South Africa is not the bottom of the Sub-Saharan Africa, that in fact, they're in the middle to the top of the uh, countries that have taken the regional test. So if you link those two ideas together, you see that these other countries in Africa are way behind and they, they somehow need to be able to find ways to improve their schools because I don't think development will happen without improving their schools. You can build some, build, some bridges and you can put in watering systems and maybe teach them a little bit about farming that's not going to make them competitive internationally in the long run. And what they have to do is, uh, according to all of our research, improve the quality of their schools. Yeah, and it seems like fertile fields in Africa for those improvements because their economic growth has plenty of room to grow. And so does their effectiveness on their schooling, which is sort of, a, according to your estimation, a precursor to that economic growth. So, Rick, I want to talk to you just to let you kind of talk back over your career a little bit. You've been in the field for decades. You, you touched on this a little bit from the very beginning of the field, sort of starting out for the, the Coleman report. But I'm just sort of interested in how you would describe how the field of economics of education, education research generally, has you know, developed maybe just over the past 25 years or so. Well, it's been heartening to me that over recent years, some of the best graduate uh, students in economics have been going into education. And I think partly it's driven by the fact that the data on performance and, and the institutions of education have improved so much in recent decades that students see that this is a good place to do their research. They, there's data available and they can get into problems that are important, socially important, policy important. And that's driving a lot of students in economics now. So when I started, you could literally count 
the economists who looked at education on one hand. One hand. Um, and today it's a pretty vibrant field. It's partly overcome resistance in the education sector too. When I first started, uh, there was there were there were two groups of uh, two camps that looked at the research I was doing. One camp said, economists don't know anything, we shouldn't pay any attention to them. And the other said, economists are evil people and we, do, we have to, to somehow avoid what they're saying. Uh, there were very few that were saying anything uh, very positive at that time. But I think that's changed now that people recognize that systematic research in education has a real value and can help guide policies. So when you look back over your career, are there one or, or, or two pieces of, of scholarship, research products that you have contributed on or, or put out that you might call your favorites or just have been quite gratifying? Well, <clears throat> um, I, I guess... I know it's, it's hard to ask you to pick among your children, <laughs> but, uh, you know, who's your favorite? Well... It, it goes along the lines that you asked me earlier, what, what are my lines of research? Uh, um, sometime, um, I guess in, could it have been early 80s, uh, I wrote an article called Throwing Money at Schools, which introduced the idea that how we spend money is often more important than how much we spend. Um, and that, I think, got people thinking, um, uh, also raised the ire against economists at that time. The other uh, piece of work that I did was actually a very technical piece uh, that I published with Steve Rivkin and John Kane that I think established without doubt that teachers differed in their effectiveness. We could measure their effectiveness. It was not all the selection of students into their classrooms. It was not all outside factors, but there were inherent differences among teachers. And I think that that sort of showing that it was something real, that teachers differed and that they didn't line up according to how much education they had or how much experience they had, but it was some inherently different factors. So I think that those those two, I, I guess I have to also mention the uh, sort of work that is most recently looking at economic growth and showing there's a, again, a, a technical article to deal with the scientific side that suggests that countries that have better education systems will grow faster and that this is a causal relationship that if in fact countries figure out how to get higher achievement, they would in fact in the future grow faster. So we did a lot of work, Ludger Wusman and I, to try to demonstrate that. So those are the, the highlights, I guess. Um, uh, but they're, they're not probably the highlights for people listening to podcasts because they turn out to be fairly technical articles that are needed to convince the other researchers that there's something real there. 
Yeah, they're not much for popular press. But, you know, that's that's another thing I wanted to ask you. You've written books. You've written short-form stuff, lots of technical work. What do you think gets the most sort of traction, the most bang for your buck? What's your what's your preferred writing product? Well, I sort of uh, try to, dem- to translate what I've done into more readily policy-relevant advice or, or comments. I think that that has motivated most of my research where I am doing what I would call serious technical economic research, but that it, the answers are important for policy answers. And I think where I've had the biggest influence actually is not individual op-eds or more popular things. It's trying to change the questions that are asked. It's trying to get people to think differently about problems. Um, I'm not telling people how to vote um, on uh, HR 1231 is uh, our current legislation in any state or in the national government. I'm trying to tell them how sh- what are the important issues that you should focus on and try to hone your policies and legislations too. So a large part of that is convincing people that we should look at the outcomes of schools, the achievement and further continuation schools and subsequent lifetime earnings, as opposed to the inputs of schools, which are the common focus of, of much of our policy discussions. What are the inputs? Well, that turns out to be often a pretty bad proxy for what you'll get at the other end. So that's interesting, you know, that for many folks, the sort of landscape of education policy now flows through Twitter and other social media, like everything else. And I just wonder, you know, you're making the point here, you know, part of this is framing the questions in the right way. And I wonder, you know, what you think about doing research now that there's just such a high volume sort of via social media that sort of shapes these things and just what you make of the the difference of operating sort of now than maybe even 10 years ago. Well, country would probably be better off if we had a, a day a week of I'm off from Twitter. Um, but, you know, I think that there, the point you make about the volume is important. There are many people, many organizations that just have such a high volume of discussion that it's hard to to keep focus. And so I'm not sure how we break through that, frankly. I think it's in part working a lot on disseminating rigorous, serious evaluation and research directly to policymakers, which in education is tough because lots of policy is made at the 50 state capital level as opposed to in Washington, DC. Yeah, um, so it, it takes a lot of different effort and I don't think any of us have really solved that problem. Uh, we're working a bit on that at Hoover. We have something called the Hoover Education Success Initiative, which is designed really to try to get serious research to 
the policymakers in the individual states. We're struggling a bit, but I think we're making some progress of figuring out how to get actors in the individual states involved in discussing the research and participating in framing the questions so that they feel comfortable with them. Uh, but it's an uphill struggle. And I know that AEI has also faced the same kind of struggle to the extent that uh, you're sitting in Washington, DC and the work on national policy and with the federal government, it's easier once you try to slip out of Washington, DC and get to those 50 states that are swarming around out there um, I'm sure you face the same thing, but it takes a special effort and a, and a bit of luck, frankly, of getting the attention of the right people. I commiserate with the this, this struggle that both Hoover and AEI are, are, are all working at. I'd, I'd like to take a couple of minutes to go through a couple of quick topics. I just kind of want to give listeners a little bit of a flavor of uh, you know, your perspective on things uh, over your career and, and now. For each of these, I'm just going to throw out some topics, and I want you to weigh in sort of briefly on whether you think this is they've been sort of a net positive development for education, net negative, or, or maybe a wash. You can respond however you like. You can just uh, say positive, negative, or a wash. You can give some explanation if you want to couch it, and then you can feel free to pass. Sound good? Sure, I'm ready. All right, here, here's the first one. College for all. Uh, college for all, I think that's overrated. I don't think that we should have one simple 16-year schooling program, but I think that we should, in fact, have a broad array of alternative options. America's federalist education system. I think uh, it's... It's overrated in some circles who argue that competition among the states is good for education. I think that we're struggling with that. We've struggled with it since No Child Left Behind and its demise and now into the current education, Every Student Succeeds Act, ESSA. We're in a national labor market and people move around a lot. And so there really are implications for the education in Virginia for the economy in California. And I think that we need a little bit more federal guidance on what should be produced, but not on how it should be produced. Um, and that's where NCLB went wrong. It was about 180 degrees out of phase because it said states decide what to produce. And then if you don't do it, we, the federal government, will tell you how to produce it. I'd, I'd just reverse that. All right. The does money matter debate? I think it's a continuing debate. It's uh, overrated um, in some ways because people want to say, if you have more money, can you do better? And it, it, it's doubtful that you can actually hurt schools by giving them more money. There's, you could think of ways to do it. Uh, but the real question is how how money is spent is more important than how much. And I think that, that uh, the research part of it, how money matters, uh, is overrated. The policy aspect of it, I think, is about right, because we're now 
they're always asking the question, well, how is that money going to be spent? All right. The establishment of uh, high required high stakes tests. I think that's very important to have have that uh, both high stakes and regular testing. So I, I I think it's under underrated now because there seems to be this great movement to do away with tests. The the unions have been heavily behind that idea coming out of COVID. They said, well, there's such disruption. How can we test anybody? But it's hard to know how you would ever improve if you don't know where you're at now and what's happening when you change it. How about standards-based reform? Uh, I, I think that's overrated uh, myself. I don't, I'm, I'm not a huge curriculum person I, because what you want people to know is tends to vary quite a bit from what they actually know. And so I, I'm, I'm not a big person who emphasizes the standards as opposed to the performance. And uh, last one I'll throw out there, gifted and talented education programs. I think that those are valuable. I think you want to have uh, more individualized instruction in general. I think as we go out, come out of the COVID experience, it becomes very important that you have to deal with students where they're at. And that gifted and talented deals at the top end uh, dealing at the bottom end is also important, but matching the student experience with where they're at has got to be the way that we get out of this COVID experience. So pulling back away from that, and thank you for, for, for going through so quickly, pulling back from some of the policy changes that have been made in retrospect, I wonder if you think there are, you know, some low-hanging fruit policy-wise that might produce high-value benefits in the U.S. education system. And, and I don't mean, you know, what would be politically easy, but I'm wondering, do you think some of the things that are maybe politically unpalatable exist that would actually be fairly easy wins if we could just get around the politics that uh, block those things? Well... Before COVID and, and now after COVID, I lean much more to uh, using effective teachers more intensively. When we have both hybrid instruction and in-class instruction, there's no doubt that some teachers are much more effective than others. And we want to find ways to use our effective teachers more. So it's easy to do actually, if you have hybrid instruction and sort of internet lessons and so forth to think of getting the best internet instruction people, most effective internet people with more students than the 28 that would come normally in a class. Um, And so lining up effectiveness with instruction. And of course, when you get the politically infeasible, I think that there's a small number of our teachers that shouldn't be teaching. They should be doing something else. And I don't think it's any mystery which teachers are the ones that should be doing something else. The principals in every class school know it. The other teachers know it. The kids know it. The parents know it. Um, I usually say, and the janitor probably knows it also. But we have a system that traditionally will not operate on manage a, a system that calls for moving some people into other other jobs. And uh, I think that that is 
extraordinarily costly to us to allow um, what we know is bad educational policy to continue. Yeah, it's sort of the the flip side of the good teachers are important for student outcomes. Uh, the, yeah. the, the converse also holds. Exactly. I mean, I should just say you're sitting in Washington, D.C., where it's been demonstrated that if you have a systematic way to evaluate teachers and you reward the best teachers a lot, they stay around. And if you fire the worst teachers, <laughs> you fire them or you get people to leave when they realize they're not doing very well. And the DC schools have improved over time by implementing this system. But here's one district out of 14,000 and it hasn't caught on. I think this is really a societal problem. So Rick, you've accumulated a lot of knowledge and sort of have a, you know, inside baseball understanding of what it is to be a researcher. So looking at the experience end of things, for younger researchers out there who might be listening, do you have any parting advice that you wish you might have known when you started entering in this line of work that you'd pass on? Well, the, the first thing that I uh, naively did not understand is that uh, there's a group of people in any policy area that like a certain set of answers, regardless of the science behind it. And so if you're an early researcher, uh, my advice is stick with the research and the science and don't get swept away with uh, the current preferences of people and the politics of things, because then, then you get into trouble. And so, but the, the magnitude of interest in certain things out there is, is remarkable. Uh, when I looked in the past at the non-existent impacts of lowering class size, there were some people that had very strong opinions that class sizes should be smaller, regardless of what any of the data said. So to them, if you're gonna apply the trade, apply the trade, right? <laughs> that's exactly. No, that's precisely the story. Well, Rick, you've done that. Thanks for coming. Congratulations again on the Yidon Prize. And uh, we'll look forward to having you back in a few years when your, um, your project in Africa gets off the ground. I'd love to come back. Thanks for having me, Nat. Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Nat Malkus. And special thanks to our guest, Rick Hanyashek. We'll include a link to the announcement of Rick's Yadon Prize Award in the show notes. I'd also like to thank our producer, Wesley Armstrong, who's just taken over this episode. He made this podcast possible. You can subscribe to The Report Card on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, take a minute to leave us a review. It helps other folks find the show. Also, send us your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at adi.org. That's all for this episode. I'm Matt Mountains.